Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion team. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of the MLB Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis and Sam Dykstra, who is filling in, and I am confident to predict quite ably for the vacationing Jonathan Mayo. Draft in the books, Mayo has packed his bags and taken off on a road trip in the Pacific Northwest, leaving from the draft and all-star game festivities and left us here to uh well he left sam he left sam here to uh cover all of his his uh team's prospects who got called up to the big leagues and that's one thing we're going to talk about on today's podcast we're going to talk about the spate of recent call-ups uh to the big leagues tyler soderstrom quinn priester andy rodriguez christian Encarnacion, strand all being called up within the past week uh, before we get to that we're going to talk draft of course you know we were very chaotic leading up to the draft and then that whole week in Seattle, very busy. And But it doesn't stop there. All these guys are signing now. The signing deadline is a week from today as we, we record this. It is, uh, signing deadline is on July 25th. And uh, Jim is keeping everybody in the baseball world or at least in the draft and prospect hemisphere of that world busy with uh, reporting all of these signings. So we're going to talk about some of the more notable deals that have gone down and uh, also going to take a look back at last year's draft class at some guys who are performing quite well from the 2022 class. We'll look ahead a little bit to the 2024 class, give you some names to be on the lookout for. Uh, We are going to talk about the two newest additions to the top 100 prospects list, and we'll wrap up by answering a question from the mailbag. All right, draft. Jim. Most people, I, I noticed on I noticed on Slack this week, r- right after the draft and All Star game, there were a lot of palm trees, which indicate people on vacation. You guys notice that? Most I had people, not. I've been, I've been too rest. busy to notice. I the, <laughs> exactly. noticed the icons. This so. is my point. Most people take a, a little breath after the draft, but there is no breather for you, Jim. Yeah, it, I mean. The signings are interesting. Like, like I every year I'm like, ah, I've got to cut back. I need to not report or try to report as many signings as I do, and then I I get sucked back in, and and you know they kind of build up. Nobody nobody's gonna listen. We need a moratorium. I, I like the fact that we get all the signings within two weeks of the draft, but we need like a a five day grace period where nobody's allowed to announce anything. Um, so we could catch our breath after the draft, but that never happens. But yeah, no, I'm I'm fully immersed in my. Uh, I'm gonna give a little public service announcement because I, I get a bunch of tweets from fans of various teams like the Dodgers haven't announced anybody yet. What's going on? Are, are they not signing guys? A lot of teams like to announce a bunch of their signings at the same time. So just because your team, as we record this on Tuesday morning, hasn't signed their first round pick or hasn't announced you know any or many signings. Don't worry about it. Almost everybody's going to sign out of the draft, especially in the first 10 rounds with the bonus pool picks. To this point, I haven't heard, I haven't heard of anybody who a deal's falling through or there's a, a physical, I'm not claiming I'm on top of every unsigned player, but there are no whispers that a prominent draft pick is not going to sign this year. Yeah, it seems like over the past few years, we've, we've talked about this, the fact that the signing deadline is not what it used to be. Several years ago, I think it was often midnight too, right, Jim? The, oh, the it was terrible. Yeah, because <laughs> before the bonus pull era, 
from about 2000, like bonuses, little draft history lesson. So bonuses were very flat and they took, I think, over 20, 20 years before anybody got more money than Rick Monday got as being the number one pick in the first draft. I'm sorry, I take it back. More money than Rick Reichert got as the biggest bonus baby pre-draft era. It took 20 years for the draft to catch up. And then for a variety of reasons, in the 90s, bonuses exploded, just grew wildly every year. First round bonuses were going up. So starting in 2000, MLB came up with this informal sliding plan where they came up with values they thought all the picks were worth which coincidentally, because they weren't negotiated with the union, were well below market value. And they would try to get the teams to adhere to them. Um, and three quarters of the teams would. And about a quarter of the teams would just spend what they kind of wanted. Um, but anyway, if you were going to sign a guy to an above slot deal, you basically MLB would not allow the teams to announce it unless it was a major league contract, which they had no control over, but wouldn't allow teams to announce it until the very end, right at the deadline. And so... I mean, you'd go in, I know the last year before the bonus pools in 2011, I think there was something like $180 million worth of bonuses announced on the final day, like out of $230 million total. And the higher the bonus, the longer you had to wait. I mean, and you'd go till midnight. And I remember Steven Strasburg's deal came out 10 minutes before midnight. I mean, you knew he was going to sign, but like the, the most drama was the year with Eric Hosmer and Pedro Alvarez and the clock struck midnight. And it was unclear whether those guys had signed. And then later it came out. It wasn't great. MLB. They hadn't. Well, yeah. And, and well, Derek Hosmer was always in dispute whether he had signed or not. Frank Coonley, the Pirates, used to work for MLB, admitted later that MLB gave him seven extra minutes to work out a deal with, with Pedro Alvarez, which kind of bogus, like rules a rule. Um, and then so they, they op- reopened his contract negotiations and he wound up signing a major league contract for more numerical value than Buster Posey got, but less actual value than he signed originally. But anyway, yeah, it's you'd have this drama and it was midnight. And I remember the Pedro Alvarez year, which I guess was 2007, I think, going on ESPN at like 12.20 Eastern time. And they're like, did they sign? And I was like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> like, we didn't know. But now, you know, now that you have the bonus pull era and you have the penalties in place where if you go 5% over your bonus pool, you start losing a first-round pick and more if you go up to 10% and, and more as you go higher. Nobody's ever done that. I don't think anybody ever will intentionally or hopefully unintentionally. Um, and now because of the bonus pools, MLB no longer – you sign guys for whatever you want, whenever you want, and if you go over the bonus pool, you'll get penalized, and it, it's much different. You're like You would not have – I've lost track, Jason. I don't know how many first rounders we we thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Uh, well, it looks like eight, seventeen. But like, Cole Emerson's number has been reported by Daniel Kramer, our Mariners guy, even though he hasn't signed. So I, I think eighteen of the twenty-eight first rounders are pretty much done right now. We know what we know what they've what they've gotten and 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 all that. Um, and then it wouldn't have been like that, you know, before the bonus pool era. Yeah, so let, let's talk about some of the guys at the top. We do know six of the top 10 and two of the top four with Max Clark and Wyatt Langford at three and four. Is that, is that, is that what you have, Jim? I'm trying to yes, keep track. Yeah, yes, okay. yeah. It's, my head's spinning too. Like between people in baseball are very good about kind of getting me numbers and asking me what I've heard. But like, I feel like, again, I would fail a quiz. <laughs> if you gave me a sparkle quiz and I had to identify which guy signed and for how much my head's still spinning too much to, to have it. I have to look at it on a spreadsheet. <laughs> I do not have it committed to memory yet. Well, looking at the top 10 of the six who have signed, you know how many of them have signed for over the pick value? I will say one. One is correct. And, that, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised because we knew, you know, like, Jacob Wilson and Blake Mitchell were cutting deals to go sixth and eighth. They, they probably wouldn't have gone that high if they didn't. Um, and the bonuses, the, the pick value shot up 10% um, this year. And so you figured teams were going to be trying to save where they could. So that's not, that's not entirely surprising. I, I think – I think you're going to see Noble Meyer at number 10 come in under slot. The number one pick, Paul Skeens, is going to destroy the bonus record, but he's going to come in under slot because he's not going to get $9.7 million. And Dylan Cruz and Walker Jenkins, Cruz will be around slot and maybe a tick over 
Wyatt Lank. I mean, Walker Jenkins with the Twins. I'm not like he might come in a little over slot or right around slot. Like that one, I'm not sure exactly what that number is going to be. But yeah, it's. I'm not surprised just because the slots shot up so much compared to last year. So Max Clark at three got 7.7. Pick value was 8.34 million. At number four, Wyatt Langford got eight million. Pick value was seven point seven million. How do these look historically, Jim? Yeah, these are two of the nine highest bonuses of all time. I mean, they're going to be two of the eleven highest after we see Skeens and and Cruz sign. But the, the record for now is Spencer Torkelson of the Tigers got a little over eight point four million back in two thousand twenty. Um, Langford got his eight million. Ties Garrett Cole for the fifth highest of all time. The top five are, are, are Torkelson, Jackson Holiday, and Drew Jones from last year, Adley Rutschman from 2019, and Garrett Cole in 2011, which was the last draft before the bonus pool era. And then Max Clark, 7.7, slots in behind Jack Leiter and Bobby Witt, Leiter in 2021, Bobby Witt in 2019. What's interesting, if you, if you really want to dig deep, everybody else I've mentioned was a number one or number two overall pick. Max Clark was obviously number three overall pick. That's the most money a number three overall pick has ever gone. That record was $7.2 million, a little over that, by Andrew Vaughn in 2019. And Wyatt Lankford, $8 million is the most a number four pick has ever gotten. That record was set just last year by Termar Johnson, who was a little over $7.2 million as well. And Jim, kind of moving down, one of the things that I think stood out to me as somebody who has the Blue Jay system, but also just looking at some of the you know pre-draft coverage and where guys were slotted and um, where they popped in not only our rankings, but multiple rankings was Arjun Namala, who, f- who was our 11th ranked prospect, but fell to number 20 with the Blue Jays. Usually when that happens, you start to think, okay, he may have fallen, but he'll sign for at least slot, if not a little bit more. But Namala, Florida shortstop with really good power, still really young at 17 years old, won't turn 18 until October, signed for $3 million, which is $750,000 under slot. Um, what do you think went on there? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple things. One, we'd heard that he might be slipping a little bit. And, and I think he didn't work out for some teams in the middle of the first round. And so they didn't have as much comfort maybe taking him and, and stopping that fall a little bit higher than would have gone. But it's, it's fun. I have a, a friend who says this every year, and he's right, that like everybody gets all excited about the high school players in early spring and you know coming off the showcase circuit. And, you know, we do our list or Baseball America or ESPN, whoever does their list. We have all these high school guys, you know, ranked relatively high. Like we're not, we're just ranking talent. We're not, I mean, and and you're factoring in risk also when you're ranking talent, but we're not as concerned with college versus high school as I think the teams are. And my friend always points out, the closer you get to the draft and then teams start making their boards and it's time to make the picks, they feel more comfortable taking the college guys because you have more track records, you have more data, you've seen them against better competition. And that's what we saw happen this year. I mean, we saw a very deep draft, you know, going back to the pandemic draft of 2020 being shorter than usual. More high more of the top high school guys went to college. Dylan Cruz was a top guy out of high school. Kyle Teal was a top guy out of high school. They wound up going to college. They had both pulled out of the 2020 draft, in fact, right before it started. But in any case, you have the, the, the five guys, you know, Skeens, Cruz, Clark, Langford, Jenkins, who are all potential number one candidates and would have been number one picks in a lot of drafts, it, it, you know, if it wasn't stacked as this year. And after then, we had, you know, we mentioned, you know, Wilson cut a deal, Blake Mitchell cut a deal, Noble Meyer cut a deal in the top 10. We had a couple college pitchers go. And then it was all bats. And we saw from picks 11 through 19, it was eight college bats out of nine. All these teams, and like we had heard, the Diamondbacks might take Colin Houck, and he went 32. And the Red Sox might take a high school guy. They were on, you heard them on Colin Houck and Aiden Miller, and Aiden Miller went 27th. And the White Sox, I mean, the, the Cubs and White Sox at 13, 15 were on high school guys, and they all took college guys. And, and, and I think what just happened is, is Namal got caught up in that a little bit. I, I, I am a little surprised at the 3 million, but again, you know, usually, you know, when these guys do deals, they have a, a sense of where their player is going to go. Um, if he doesn't take a deal at, at whatever slot it is. And I guess they felt like if he didn't go 20, he was going to slip a little further too. So I, I, I'll admit I, I, w- I was a little surprised by that one. Um, but I, I think on the same hand, uh, you know, or uh, other hand, Toronto's got to be really thrilled to get him at pick 20 um, and then pay him what they did because they, they used a lot of that savings. They went out and gave Landon Marudis their fourth rounder $1.5 million. 
And when you're talking about college guys, like the, there's a strong preference for that just because of the longer track record. And I know this draft was kind of unusual in that way because of the pandemic, like you were talking about. But as the draft got pushed back to July, is there any feeling like there's a recency bias with this too? Like you have seen college guys, especially these guys obviously playing into Omaha. You've seen them more recently. I know you can do high school workouts and all that, but like you've seen college guys much more recently and they might be a little bit fresher in mind. Is there anything to that? Maybe. I mean, I think this kind of went on before that. I mean, the thing is now with the draft combine and I forget how many days it is for draft combine, you can't work out guys after the combine and you like within a couple of days of the combine after that, you can't work guys out individually anymore. So it's not like you could keep working the guys out in July. I, I, I just think it's more of a comfort thing, honestly. I mean, yeah. maybe, I mean, obviously, you know, with a guy like Ty Floyd, who the Reds took in, in the supplemental first round, I, obviously what he did striking out 17 in the college world series game, you know, helped him. But like, you know, uh, you know, Matt Shaw, you know, who went to the Cubs at, at, at 13, you know, Maryland wasn't in the college world series. Like he was, you know, he was pretty much done. Nolan Shanuel, he was pretty much done. He still went 11th. It's just, I, I think his teams sit around a table and start talking about, okay, it's time to pick. We're lining up our board. They're just, there's going to be more comfort. Like I, I think, and I'm not saying you, you draft all upside. I do think there's more upside with some of these high school guys, but that's just the way teams prefer to, uh, majority of teams prefer to draft. So talking about Namala getting less than expected uh, at number 20 overall there, out of the 17 first rounders that have agreed to deals, we, we mentioned earlier that only one above slot uh, in the top 10, but in the entire first round, only two, the, the only other player who's above slot at this point uh, was a Yankees first round pick, George Lombard Jr. So... Um, we'll see if that trend continues as these first rounders uh, come yeah. to terms. Yeah, and there's there's some gamesmanship there. Like I don't know the exact specifics of why Lombard got three point three million at pick twenty six, but usually what happens there is uh, the Yankees have you know really want George Lombard Jr. and there's interest ahead of them, and you have to come up with a number that's going to make him fall to twenty six, and it seems like that number was three point three, and the Yankees were willing to pay it. All right, Jim, some more notable signings outside of the first round. Yeah, just, just for sheer dollars. In the second round, uh, the Giants took Walker Martin, really talented high school shortstop out of Colorado, who they considered strongly with their first-round pick, um, and wound up, you know, he was sitting there for him in the second round uh, when it came back around. He got a he got $3 million minus the $2,500. There's a contingency bonus you get for executing your contract. It's $2,500. And some teams take that out of your signing bonus so it doesn't count against the pool. And some teams give it to you on top of your bonus. So, he, so Walker Martin signed for $3 million minus the $2,500 contingency bonus in the second round. Top of the third round, you know, Sam, I know you do the Nationals list. We, we, they've added all kinds of talent for you. You get Dylan Cruz at the, with the number two pick. You get Johanny Morales, who wasn't expected to be there at the top of the second round. And then Travis Sikora, who had won the best arms among high school pitchers this year. He won at the top of the third round. He got $2.6 million in a slot that's valued a little bit over a million dollars. That was a biggie. Walker Martin's slot was $1.6 million. Um, you know, right behind... Sakura, another high school pitcher, Steven Echeverria from New Jersey. He went to the A's with the second pick of the third round. He got $3 million on a million-dollar slot. I think that's – I haven't done all the math. I think that's the highest above-slot bonus compared to the pick value thus far. And then you have some other interesting ones. Brandon Winokur, who we saw, Jason, tear it up at the, yeah, at combine. the uh, combine, had a great BP. He got a million and a half dollars from the Twins as a third-rounder. I mentioned – Landon Marutis got a million and a half dollars. He's another high school pitcher from the Blue Jays, a fourth round team. The theme here is on a lot of these high school guys, especially the pitchers, is for the high upside guys who maybe there's more risk. Teams are fine with paying him. They'd rather do it with a lower pick and, and maybe take a safer guy with an earlier pick. And then one that happened right as our podcast began, the White Sox signed George Wolkow, who also was very impressive at the combine. He's 6'7", 239 pound. Uh, you know, incredible raw power, reclassified from the 2024 draft. He got a million dollars as a seventh round pick in a slot. It's about four times the slot value there. So those are probably the biggest over slot deals off the top of my head that are official right now. 
All right, Jim, I I always like to ask you uh, in these days where just about everybody signs, you're over under on the number of guys from the top 10 rounds that will not sign out of out of the 314 taken. Okay, and, and like I said, I haven't heard anything. I, I'm going to say one. I'll say one is my over under. Um, well, yeah, what, has it, have, what has it been the past few years? It's been like one, I know it one, was two, one to three. last year. I know it was two last year. I can't remember the Kumar Rocker year. There was obviously Kumar. Yeah, it, this feels like one of these things. I should I should put in a list so I have it handy. Looking here real quick. I, I want to say, was there another guy the Kumar year that that didn't sign? That seems right. This sounds like a job for uh, Jordan, the intern. It was three. Well, because we had Judd Fabian, who didn't get the $3 million because he, he fell one pick of shy game to the Orioles, who had promised him $3 million, and he didn't sign with the Red Sox. And then Alex Aloha, who had, we'll just say some off-field issues, the Astros' fourth-round picks. There were three in 2021. But I'll, I'll say one. And, and you know, maybe it should be one and a half. But I was going to say, you didn't even put a half on it. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm, I, it's like... The, the, the thing is, it's like now you have so many guys doing physicals at the combine. You know, the, the last two years, I think one of the one real positive change is for years, MLB has wanted to get medical information on players before the draft. So you don't draft a Kumar Rocker or a Brady Aiken or whoever and and then have something crop up that you were unaware of. And they finally, going into last year's combine, agreed, the union and MLB, that if a player takes a, a, a full physical at the combine – then he's guaranteed 75% of his pick value wherever you take him. So you, you gave players an incentive to do it. So the last couple of years, you've had more than 200 players both years take physicals. So the odds that one of these guys is going to fail physical is, is very slim. I, I haven't heard any rumblings of you know, a guy whose bonus demands were so high and the team took like, – like last year, Brandon Sprout reportedly had a $2 million price tag. And the Mets took him anyway, hoping to whittle him down from two. And, and they couldn't. You know, Nolan McClain failed a physical with the Orioles. So it, it's possible that, that you could have a failed physical. But I haven't heard I haven't heard any rumblings of that. And I haven't heard any rumblings that, like, there's a specific player who's either changed his mind about what he wanted or his demands are so high and the team's not going to meet it. So we'll, we'll see. I mean, one and a half is probably a, a better over-under than, than one. But it probably will not be and i haven't heard anybody significant um falling into that category at this point all right so the draft signing deadline again is on july 25th and if you are not following jim callis mlb on twitter what are you even doing here well Uh, i wonder if i i wonder how many people have unfollowed me because i'm just (laughs) bombarding them with signing information and it's too much yeah i should have tracked that yeah i don't know all right well Let's, uh, let's take a break here, and we'll come back. We'll take a quick look back at some guys from last year's draft class who are off to good starts this year, and we'll look ahead to the 2024 class a little bit. We're going to do that coming up next on the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis and Sam Dykstra. We've been talking about uh, the 2023 draft class. Now we want to take quick looks at the 2022 class and the 2024 class. First, looking back at 2022. Guys, I've been kind of interested in, pulled up the, the stats for the 2022 draft class, sorted them by most total bases, and there are some interesting names up there. Um out of the top 10, the only first rounder is the number one overall pick, Jackson Holiday. Uh, should not be much of a surprise. We've been talking about his incredible season all year. He's up to double A. He's uh, got a, what, 997 OPS at three levels. Uh, 
But the rest of the guys on the list, there's a there's a third rounder, a fourth rounder, sixth rounder. No, there are a couple of competitive balance picks, but there's a 10th rounder, a 13th rounder, a 15th rounder. I don't know if this is, you know, I didn't go through each of these players. I don't know if this is primarily a matter of, you know, guys just starting at levels that are a little lower than maybe necessary and they're, you know, old for the league or old for the level or, you know, what the situation is. But running down the list, Tim Elko, uh, White Sox 10th round pick, leads uh, all of last year's draft class in total bases. Jordan Beck, the Rockies uh, competitive balance A pick, is second. Ryan Ritter, another Rockies pick, their fourth rounder, is third. Chris Newell, Dodgers 13th round pick, number 405 overall, uh, is... Well, he's got uh, 20 home runs, 155 total bases, 939 OPS. Colby Thomas, the A's third rounder, is next. Tanner Schobel, Twins competitive balance B pick. Jarrell Ortega, Twins sixth round pick. Hayden McGeary, Cubs 15th rounder. And then Holiday rounding out the top 10. But he's uh, tied with Ivan Melendez. Don't short Ivan Melendez. Oh, you're yeah. Going, I did. Spikes <laughs> tied. Last year. Come on. Jim, uh, known Ivan Melendez supporter is coming to his support here. Um, but yeah, I just I, I thought it would be interesting to talk about some of these guys because I think only half of them are in their team's top 30 prospects. So I was kind of curious whether at this point in the season, I guess it probably depends on where these guys got drafted, how old they are, where they're playing, but did any of these guys move into the top 30 teams, top 30 list when we re-rank here over the next few weeks? Um, Too early to say? It's early to say. It's tough because like Chris Newell's kind of on the fringes of a deep Dodger system for me. Like, like he could make the top 30, except you have the draft guys coming in. So the draft guys are going to take up four or five spots. You know, Chris Newell's always been a guy who's had big tools. He's still striking out some, too, in the minor leagues, but like never really put it together and had a huge year at, at Virginia, which is why he let, went in the 13th round. But he's got the, the tools to maybe do it. You know, Tim Elko is kind of an older guy in the White Sox system. You know, he was part of their, you know, one of the emotional leaders of their, their College World Series championship team last year. He played through a torn ACL. I think it was a year before. I don't want to get my, my Tim Elko years confused when he was at Ole Miss. Um, you know, hit 40 homers his last two seasons. But he's 24 years old, and he hasn't played above high A yet, and he just got to high A. So, like, I think he's got to prove it at a higher level. Another guy who's who's interesting for one of my teams is Hayden McGeary of the Cubs, who they moved very quickly to double A. He was an older guy. They, they drafted out of Mesa State in Colorado, and he's already, like I said, in double A. He's actually holding his own there. Cubs system might be a little deep to get a guy who, who's a first base only guy on the list. But I had to bring up Hayden McGeary because I love to read off his stats. He was the two-time NCAA Division II Player of the Year, holds a Division II career record with 75 homers. And in his draft year last year when they took him, he led D2 with a 481 average, 579 OBP, 1061 slugging. That's not ops. That's 1061 slugging. <laughs> so if Hayden McGeary went to the plate and he had a single – his slugging percentage went down. 1640 ops, 103 hits, 35 homers, 227 total bases. It's insane, crazy stats for Hayden McGeary. And so far, you know, for a 15th round pick, came into pro ball and he's hit everywhere he's gone. So he's he's a pretty interesting guy too. The, 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 that's my take on, I, I guess, my guys in, in, in that group. Yeah, and, and just piggybacking off of McGeary, I mean, I, I remember going to last year's Appalachian League All-Star game and he was obviously going to be named an All-Star. He'd done really, really well. And then he got drafted, and like the entire All Star game was just a buzz of like, "Hey, this is what the Appy League could be." That league was kind of set up as, "Hey, these are where guys could be drafted eventually down the line." Um, but for McGeary to really show out as he had done all spring at D two in that setting, obviously helped him get drafted, and um, you know, has had him helped him hit the ground running. And even talking to some folks ahead of next week's Happy League All Star Game, it, he's still kind of like the golden child of that league. Of like, hey, come here and get drafted. I remember two years ago, it was Homer Bush Jr. who obviously just got drafted this year. Um, so th there's some possibilities there, but the fact that he was able to take off and continue from the Appalachian League, which is still finding its footing as a summer collegiate wood bat league, was really exciting. I want to say, I think McGeary was headed to Kentucky if he didn't get drafted and signed. I, I think he was going to transfer to Kentucky 
as a graduate transfer. That was that was perfect, Sam, because I was going to say, quick plug, you are headed to the uh, Appalachian League All-Star Game again. Yes, I will be there next Tuesday from Kingsport, Tennessee. Um, it's been really fun to, to cover that game the last two years and and see guys, like I said, like it, it's not necessarily, especially now, the game's after the draft. We're not looking at guys before the draft, but uh, it, it's been fun to see some of these guys turn into actual draft picks after they play in that game. So that game will be broadcast on MLB.com next Tuesday night. And Sam, I know pretty much every one of the guys <laughs> that I rattled off there is either one of Jim or Jonathan's guys in terms of the teams that they primarily oversee sam's doing a poor job of development uh, apparently <laughs> it's all my fault i'm it I'm is bring i mean that's why i brought up ivan melendez I, I think he's the only guy who is one of sam's teams yeah yes well that is true uh, but the thing that excites me about melendez is obviously last year's golden spikes winner um you can debate the defense all you want <clears throat> but he got off to a slow start this year was on the injured list for a bit um with a left hand injury uh so the fact that he is top 10 in total bases, I think is a testament to how quickly he's come on. And not only that, he's been hitting in the Northwest League, which is a notorious pitcher's league. It's difficult to hit, you know, in the teens. I think he set the Hillsborough record for most home runs, and he did that by June. And again, that's after taking a free first couple of weeks off because of the injury. Um, so he's really come on with that power. That's what he's going to need. We knew that coming out of last year's draft, obviously. Uh, but uh, I I'm really excited to see what he can do now in Amarillo. They just called him up to double A as part of a wave of moves to kick off the second half. That is maybe the miners' best launching pad. Um, so he could put up some really stellar numbers. He's already got a slugging percentage of 611. Um, and, you know, I think he could do crazy numbers at Amarillo. Now, whether that forces him into some bad habits and, and he starts thinking, hey, all I have to do is get the ball in the air and that's going to be enough. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. Uh, looking at, D-backs prospects is one of the tougher things I have to do because judging their slugging percentages when they play at Amarillo and then go to Reno uh, is really difficult. But yeah, we could be looking back at, at the end of the year and looking up and seeing Ivan Melendez with a slugging percentage even higher than it is now at 6'11". Yeah, the only player from last year's draft class who has as many plate appearances as Melendez on a higher OPS is Jackson Holiday. Um are there some pitchers uh, from last year's class, uh, Sam, that are uh, among your teams that are that are off to good starts or interesting? Yeah, one one I'll bring up is actually the full season minor league leader in ERA, Tyler Stewart, uh, six round pick last year by the Mets. He's got a one five four ERA, a one zero four WHIP. He's keeping the walks down, twenty four walks in eighty one and two thirds innings, striking out eighty nine guys in that span, so more than a strikeout an inning as well. Um, I bring up the walks first because he stands six foot nine. Normally, you get guys like that; they don't always know where the ball's going. Um, it's difficult to control your limbs at that rate. He's doing a good job of it so far. Uh, he's more of a sinker slider guy. I know. Some people were higher on the changeup than the slider coming out of college, but he's really leaning on the slider. That seems to be working for him, obviously, with an ERA that low. Um, now he's going to be challenged at double A, but it seems like the stuff is playing, and he will definitely be on the Mets' top 30 list when we do a re-rank. Um, he would have already been on there had there been some more graduations uh, if like Ronnie Mauricio had been called up earlier or something like that. But, um, yeah, definitely look at the six-rounder to be on the Mets' top 30 when we update that next month. And when you when you do the same sort of thing, you know, I mentioned before that I just took last year's draft class, sorted them by total base leaders for this year. If you do the same thing on the pitcher side, and you know, we don't we don't have a whole lot of stats on this page to work with, but if you if you sort by whip um, and look at anybody, you kind of filter out the guys who haven't pitched more than or haven't pitched more than twenty innings. Again, you're looking at guys twentieth rounder, sixteenth rounder, eighth, thirteenth, sixteenth, eighteenth. One guy. Uh, that doesn't really fit that criteria, a first-rounder who hasn't given up a run yet. He's only pitched 14 in the third innings uh, over the course of six games. But Noah Schultz has, uh, I think I said to you guys, or at least you, Jim, the other day, that he kind of looks like a, a man among boys out there right now. Yeah, I think he's slipping, though, because I want to say when we were talking about it, he had 12 innings, one hit, one walk, and now it's 14 to third innings, five hits and two walks. So 21 strikeouts. Yeah, 21 strikeouts. You know, he had... There was a minor arm injury, which I now forget what it was, in spring training, which seems like it was about three years ago with the draft in between because I talked to him in spring training and they were taking it very cautiously with him. But look, I mean, we knew his slider's unhittable. I mean, he's, 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 he's huge. He throws from a 
you know, really low arm slot. So if you're left-handed, if you're hitting left-handed against him, it seems like the ball's coming from first base. I, I don't know how any lefty ever gets a hit off of him. You know, he's six nine, two twenty. You know, th- that slider was one of the best pitches in last year's draft. And he didn't pitch a whole lot last year. He had mono in high school. He pitched four innings total in high school. He pitched a little in the summer league, but he was 92, 97 miles an hour. And, you know, he was a little bit of a surprise pick at the end of the first round, but he looks great so far. You know, the one thing with having, you know, minor arm problems in spring training, and it was nothing major. They were just going to be cautious with him. It it automatically helps you keep his innings down. So they aren't going to have to watch his innings over the second half of the season. But I wonder, you know, they've, the White Sox have been trying to develop some in-house pitching. They, they have not had a lot of success. They've, they've struggled with a lot of the high school pitchers they've put money into, the Jerry Kellys and the Matthew Thompsons and the Andrew Dahlquist. But so far, like, really, really good for Noah Schultz. Like, his numbers are crazy. All right. We're only going to talk about six-foot-nine pitchers from, from here on out, um, since you've, you both touched on a six-nine hurler. Uh, let's look ahead to the... 2024 draft class. Now, I don't know if there are any six foot nine pitchers uh, among the top 2024 draft prospects, but something that we've been doing for several years now is to do a way too early mock for the next draft at the conclusion of the current year's draft. Uh, Jonathan Mayo had the uh, uh, good fortune of doing that this year. I I think he's done it, I want to say, the past few years. and And I also think that we looked back at last year's and it <laughs> for being done a full year in advance, it wasn't that bad. Um, so we'll, we'll see how this year's plays out. Um, but running down uh, the guys at the top of the list and we did this as a mock, which, you know, take that with a grain. But we didn't, we didn't hold a lottery though. So that's no, we didn't, we didn't hold a lot some fans on Twitter. Yeah. So it's just, it's just on, uh, on reverse standings right now. Um, and obviously this, that'll get shaken up by the, the lottery. So the, the teams don't matter. It's, we just put it into the mock format because you don't think John carefully considered each of these clubs and who, what, the, what, what their profile was and who they would pick when he put this together. I Come think on. he did. I think he did. Uh, but he, here's how, here's how it looks right now. I won't even mention the team since it, it, it just doesn't matter. It's not going to, it's not going to turn out the way it is here. Uh, but his, his top five picks are Chase Burns. Uh, right-hander for Wake Forest. Wake Forest, yeah. yeah. Transfer. Uh, which is that the team has changed and, uh, the you know, there were some, uh, there was a lot of speculation as to where he was going to end up, ended up at Wake Forest. J.J. Uh, Weatherholt, infielder from West Virginia. Connor Griffin, outfielder slash right-handed pitcher from Jackson Prep in Florence, Mississippi. Cam Caminiti, uh, left-handed pitcher slash outfielder some from Saguaro High School in Scottsdale, Arizona. And Brody Brecht, a right-hander out of Iowa at number five. Uh, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Nick Kurtz, first baseman, Wake Forest. Tommy White, third baseman, LSU. Jock Caglinone, lefty slash first baseman out of Florida. Um, P.J. Morlando, who we saw in the high school All-American game and home run derby, Last week, uh, outfielder from Somerville High School in South Carolina and Noah Franco, outfielder slash left-handed pitcher, IMG Academy. A lot of slashes in here, guys. Uh, and a lot of uh, guys currently listed as two-way players, which I know we've seen an uptick recently in the number of guys being announced as such, but uh, seems like an un- unusual number of two-way players listed that high. At, Will, will that change over the course of the next year? Yeah, I think most of these guys you kind of figure out. Like, like scouts prefer them one way or another when it starts to get closer to the draft. Um, like, I think Connor Griffin is more outfielder than pitcher, and Cam Cam Caminiti is more left-hander than outfielder. But they'll, you know, they have you know ten, eleven, twelve months to figure that out. Yeah, and I, I think you're looking at some of these guys, especially as you're talking in the first 20 picks for next year. These are supremely athletic guys who can do both right now, and it's it's too early to tell them, like, hey, choose a lane because uh, you never know what could happen. But, yeah, Connor Griffin I think is definitely um, an outfielder. Having seen him at the PDP League, he was supremely athletic out there with an arm. Obviously, if it plays on the mound, it's going to play on the outfield, but he was showcasing that a lot uh, and, and some of these other names. I, I'm still – Fascinated to see what like Jack, I'm gonna Caglianone. Caglianone. 
uh, Caglianone, Caglianone, Caglianone. There we go. Uh, there we go. Now it's in there. Um, I'm fascinated to see what's going to happen with him because it, it seems like, you know, he's done this long enough that maybe he's the best suited to be a two-way guy moving forward. And I wonder what that's going to do with his tra- draft stock. But uh, for most of the high school guys, you're going to let them pitch uh, just to see what they have before you have to choose a lane. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't like the two-way thing. I, I'm going to get on my soapbox here for a minute because – and just to compare it to this year, Jason, like Blake Mitchell threw 97 off the mound, so he could have been a catcher, right-handed pitcher. And Paul Skeens had, you know, Jay Johnson was saying he probably would hit 20 or 25 homers if he'd hit every day at LSU. So you could have had him as a two-way guy. But the pro level, I, I know it's fascinating, but I, I think Shohei Otani's ruining it by making it seem almost easier than it is. The amount of preparation. You heard it here first. Jim Callis. <laughs> Otani, bad for baseball. No, I'm not saying that. But the two-way, the two-way wave, ruining baseball. The two-way wave is not good for baseball. It's too hard. It's too much stress on guys, physically and mentally. Because I don't think fans, most fans, realize to pitch, like you, you see, like a starting pitcher every fifth day, how much work they have to do physically the other four days. Not necessarily all four days, but there's a lot of work that goes into getting ready for that fifth day. And if you're doing both, you take away from the pitching. And most guys aren't equally gifted at both. I know we had, what, eight or nine guys announced as two-way players this year. How many successful two-way players have we had in the big leagues recently? We've had one. (laughs) It's Shohei Otani. We've had guys who do it coming off the bench. I don't mind it for guys later in their careers or trying to hang on that maybe you're a bench player slash slash relief pitcher. But I, I go back, I look at Brendan McKay, who went fourth overall in the draft to the Rays. And, you know, could have been a legitimate first-round pick, top five, top ten pick as a hitter, as a pitcher. And I wonder if him trying to do things both ways, you know, be a two-way player, got him hurt. He was much more advanced to turn out as a pitcher than as a hitter. It was already like, what do we do? He's big league ready as a pitcher. He's not as a hitter. But, like, you wonder, would his arm have stayed healthier? Had he? I mean, pitchers get hurt all the time, so I'm not saying it was a two-way thing for sure. But would his arm have stayed healthier if he concentrated full-time on pitching? I, I just think – I understand why people are fascinated with it, but – Shohei Otani is literally the most talented player who's ever played Major League Baseball. It's not that easy. It's not that easy. And I, and I don't like this two-way wave. It, it, like, Dave Winfield maybe could have pulled it off, but like, I think it's too hard unless you're an unbelievable athlete to do this. I, I don't like it. So there, there you have, there's my sermon. And I'll well, I think, we're just, I think we're going to get more guys like, and this is throwing it back a number of years, but like, remember Casey Kelly drafted by the Reds? But see, he, he was a bogus one. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. I think that's what's going to happen is that we're going to see more guys get a chance to do it for one year. Like, we're going to draft you and we'll play you two ways for a year. We're going to give it a shot and we're going to reevaluate things after that. Like, that might be what Otani's bought people is a year of doing this instead of being forced to choose one or the other out of the draft. But yeah, Yeah. I I don't, I'm not saying we're going to see a wave of them to the major leagues. I think the closest we've come outside of Otani was like Jake Cronenworth, too. Like he tried it too, and and he has not pitched in the major leagues. Like that's yeah, not it's, been a thing. it's 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 just so, too hard, and that's a good point. Hard. And I think with a lot of these guys, we're going to see with Bryce Eldridge, the guys want to try it both ways. So the team, especially if you're signing a guy out of high school where the guy has more leverage, you're you're willing to let him try to do both. But I just think it's too hard. And, and like with Casey Kelly, so I was calling, but Casey Kelly was a two way player. I'm not belittling his talents, but the Red Sox 100 percent wanted him as a pitcher, and they let him play shortstop. Although they rushed him to high A to make it very difficult for him to hit, so then he might realize that hey, his future was brighter as a pitcher. But yeah, it's 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 just too tough. It's too tough. And we we have seen that trend a little bit lately, right? Well, I mean, Hunter Green when he got drafted, didn't they let him? They let him hit. Yeah, for, he got a handful of at bats. Yeah, and then uh, well, I mean, who yeah, Bubba Bubba Chandler? Bubba Chandler did a little bit. Yeah, um, Reggie Crawford this year. Reggie Crawford's it, doing it now, right? Yeah, Reggie Crawford, you know, got some at bats last year because he was coming after Tommy John, and he he hit a lot more than he pitched at Connecticut. I I don't think the Pirates are going to tell Paul Skeens he can have a few at bats. I think they're going to say no, no at bats for you. Um, I, a lot of people do. I mean, he, he was only pit player in division when he was at Air Force the year before, and in 2022, he was the only player um, in Division One who had double figures, wins, and home runs. And like I said, we we worked. The, Jay Johnson was working the draft the, the first day with MLB Network, and, and I re- happened to run into him the, the second day of the draft because he was uh, Jay Johnson so sharp. Like was not traveling on the second day of the draft because he wanted to be available to all of his recruits and his players, so he didn't travel out till after day two was done. But he was saying, like, if if if, Paul, if they let Paul Skeens hit, he's convinced he would hit twenty or twenty five home runs. All right, uh, let's take a break. 
we'll wrap up our draft talk here. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about the newest additions to the top 100 prospects list and the newest additions to the big leagues from our top 100 prospects list. That's coming up next on the MLB Pipeline Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Jim Callis, Sam Dykstra, I'm Jason Ratliff. Let's talk top 100 prospects list. We're going to talk about guys who have just jumped from there into the big leagues, uh, four of them over the past week. And then we're going to talk about a couple of new additions to the list, two of them over the past week. Uh, first of all, guys into the big leagues, Tyler Soderstrom, the number 33 prospect in baseball, A's catcher, got the bump up. Quinn Priester and Indy Rodriguez, both Pirates prospects, uh, right-hander and a catcher. Well, Indy, Indy's a... a Catcher slash slash, uh, but that was pretty cool. Got to see those guys debut as a battery together, which hadn't happened hadn't happened with the Pirates since I, what was it nineteen forty two or three or something like that. And a guy named Cookie, um, and then Christian Encarnacion Strand gets bumped up, joining that exciting young Reds crew. I think he's the fourth Reds top one hundred prospect to get to the big leagues this year, joining Ellie De La Cruz and McLean and Abbott. Um, am I missing anybody? Nope, a, no, lot, a lot of young talent there. Yeah, that's the bulk of it. Um, I guess we'll start with, with Soderstrom as being the, the higher-ranked guy. Um, Tyler Soderstrom, catcher slash first baseman, joins the A's. Uh, there's been a long debate of like whether he can be a catcher long-term. Him moving up to the majors I think is interesting because Shea Langoliers is their full-time catcher, is a significantly better defensive backstop. So I think that helps ease Soderstrom into the bigs, um, can get some time at first base, can push guys like Ryan Noda and Brent Rooker. Brent Rooker, who's been more of a DH, Ryan Noda, who's played a lot of first base but can play the corner outfielder. They, they'll spread out playing time uh, between catcher, first base, and DH for Soderstrom. But the big thing for him is the, his ability to impact the ball. I mean, that's why you allow him to play first base because it's a bat-first profile. Um, when I was doing some research for it, he had a hard hit rate at AAA of 46.2% which is the percentage of balls hit at 95-plus miles an hour uh, at AAA. That would trail only Brent Rooker's 47.4 among Oakland hitters. So he'll be one of the best power hitters in that A's lineup, which I know isn't saying a ton, given what the A's have done in the first half. But still, he'll he'll be one of their best power hitters uh, immediately upon joining that team. Um, so it wasn't just Las Vegas, which is a hitter's ballpark, that was inflating his numbers. This was exit velocity stuff. The power is in there for him. Uh, it's just a question of where do you play him. Uh, kind of speaking on that, transitioning to Andy Rodriguez with the Pirates, you mentioned he's kind of like a triple slash. He has some some time at, in the outfield. He has some time at first base. Um, but it seems like they called him up primarily to be a catcher. They optioned Jason DeLay to make room for him. Uh, Austin Hedges, it seems like, will kind of take up more of a backup role, kind of a veteran presence uh, as, as part of the Pirates battery. Andy Rodriguez, breakout year last year, climbed three levels, reached AAA, um, showed really good power last year. That hasn't so much carried over to this year, but it's still pretty good contact ability. And he's really athletic behind the plate. That's why they moved him around. It wasn't like a Soderstrom situation where, hey, we don't know if you can play catcher. We want you to play other positions. Um, with Henry Davis in the system, they thought, all right, let's give Andy some other looks too. Uh, so they moved him around because of his athleticism seems like he's going to get the bulk of the starts behind the plate. Certainly helped uh, for him to catch Quinn Priester, I'm sure. They didn't have to teach each other much. They could kind of look at each other and realize we've been through this together a lot this season. 
Um, didn't quite work out in that first start. Obviously, it was a, it was a rough one for for Quinn Priester. I think he gave up seven runs, but still, it, it must be a calming presence for those two, knowing that they are going to get ample opportunities for the Pirates in the second half. Like I know they got off to a strong start. Uh, they have certainly faded in the NL Central since then, but the Pirates need to look ahead to 2024 and identify which one of these guys is their future catcher is a future member of the rotation. Uh, so Priester and Rodriguez will get a lot of looks. As we saw in the first couple innings of Priester's debut, it's heavy on the sinker. Um, he's at his best when he's getting a lot of ground ball outs. He certainly did that at AAA Indianapolis. Uh, he's got a slider and a curveball. He seemed to prefer the slider at AAA, uh, but a lot of people think the curveball is actually the better option, and those evened out pretty well. And he got whiffs with both. Uh, in his major league debut. So it will be interesting to see if he goes more to the off-speed stuff moving forward and, and allows guys not to sit on that sinker because if he leaves it up, they can hammer it as they did last night. Uh, and then Christian Encarnacion Strand, I mean, that Reds team has been one of the surprises of the first half. Uh, and unlike the Pirates, they they are still in that playoff picture. Uh, the Brewers have taken over the NL Central lead. So if the Reds are going to claw something back, they need to be firing all the guns. They have... Encarnacion Strand, who you want to talk about power, had some of the best in AAA. Uh, one of the things we were struggling with early and why it took us a little while to add him to the top 100 was he was not walking. There was a time where his walk percentage was like 2.4. Uh, he really turned that around midseason. It was really impressive to see that him start being more selective, start taking his walks more. And I think that's why they called him up because he's found an approach in which he can marry that power without swinging out of his shoes and trying to drill the ball all the time. Um, another guy with su significant defensive questions, and I'm really interested to see how that's going to work out. He's played third base. He's played first. Um, he can't really play anywhere else. I think they've played him a little bit in the outfield, but uh, he's primarily a first baseman, but they got Joey Votto who's having a resurgent year when he's been healthy. They have Spencer Steer, who's been another effective third baseman. And Ellie De La Cruz is obviously switching between short and third and firing seeds across the diamond at 95 plus miles an hour. Uh, so if I had to guess, Encarnacion Strand's going to get more looks at DH than anything. Uh, but again, if, if you have him in your system and you have that plus power available to you and you want to track down a division title, bring him up to the big leagues. And even if he's on the bench, he's still going to pack some punch there. Yeah, that was, I was going to say, just throwing two things, Sam. I think, uh, you know, that was great analysis of the Reds, and we've talked about it repeatedly as they've called up guys throughout the summer. It's going to be interesting to see where the, the playing time shakes out. Like, and even if they fall short of the playoffs this year, that they have half a season to figure out where they want these guys for next year when they should be able to contend. So that's interesting. And then, you know, the, the, the future catcher in Pittsburgh – yeah, there was some question, you know, Henry Davis, can he catch? How much is he going to catch? You know, one day in the big leagues, Andy Rodriguez already has caught nine innings in the big leagues. Do you know how many innings Henry Davis has caught since he's been up for about a month with Pittsburgh? Zero, wanna... right? No, no, it's more than zero. It how... is more than zero? Oh, okay. It's one Four? inning. He's caught one in inning. One inning. Okay. In, the, in the big leagues. So I, I think they're going to give Andy Rodriguez a chance to be that catcher of the future. And Henry Davis is going to be more of a right fielder and kind of emergency third catcher type, um, which – you know, and that ties into Soderstrom. If you have a guy who's bad as that good with Henry Davis, with Tyler Soderstrom, and the catching's iffy, don't mess around trying to make the guy into an adequate catcher and beat him up. Just let the guy play every day in the outfield or third base or whatever, you know, first base for Soderstrom. Let the guy play every day and get the most out of the bat if that's his best tool. Like, like get, getting a diminished offensive production out of the guy and only an adequate catcher, I, I that's another one of my sermons, which Jason's heard several times. Like, I would always put those guys at the position that, that gets the most out of their bat. So interesting to see how all these guys shake out in the long run. Yeah, the only thing I'll say on that is um, – or the only other thing I'll say on that is I saw a video the other day of Hedges talking about since Henry Davis has been called up, he's still working with him on catching. So it seems like the door's not completely closed, and Austin Hedges being a veteran guy, being a completely glove – only guy at this point um, knows the score, knows he's not in Pittsburgh for the long term. Uh, and it might be looking at the future and realizing like it might be a tandem of Henry Davis and Andy Rodriguez. I don't think they've completely sh shut down that concept, but I agree with you. I mean, if he's doing well enough in right field and he certainly has the arm for it, uh, get him into a position where he can play every day because we've seen him last year go through injury issues, getting banged up. Um, so the longer you can keep him healthy, the better version of Henry Davis you're going to get. 
And back to Soderstrom, four games in the big leagues, one game behind the plate, two DH, one first base. And Sam, you were right, Encarnacion Strand has played a couple games in the outfield in the minors this year. And I was wrong. Uh, the last time the Pirates had a pitcher and catcher debut in the same game together was not 1942 or 43. It was 1946. And uh, Cookie Cucurulo and Hank Camelli, those two players. I don't know where you had them ranked in the Pirates top 30 at the time, Jim. But uh, we, were, we weren't doing top 30s back then. It top was 10 different eras. Only. Top 10s. I don't think either one of them was on the list. So. Right. All right. Uh, let's look at the... Two latest additions to the top 100 prospects list. Uh, we have at number 99, Roman Anthony, Red Sox outfield prospect. And at number 100, a re-entry to the list, Kevin Alcantara, a Cubs outfield prospect. Jim? Yeah, both outfielders. You know, Roman Anthony, I think we first got our or first time he made an impression on me was at the High school All-America game at Coors Field back in 2021 where he hit a 450-foot home run uh, that kind of made everybody sit up and take notice. Um, it was kind of a, a power over hit, swing and miss guy. That was his reputation, but he cleaned that up last spring. Red Sox wound up taking him with his supplemental second-round pick last year, gave him their highest bonus in last year's draft, even though he was their third pick, $2.5 million, which was equivalent of late first-round money. And he's been pretty good in pro ball so far. I mean, the, the numbers, you know, this year – He's he just got promoted to to high A already about three weeks ago, but you know he's hitting three forty three in high A. He's really taken off. But even when he's hitting, it was, it was weird. They promote him even though he's only hitting two twenty eight in low A uh, with one home run in forty two games. But the data on him, the exit velocities, the 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 chase rates, the uh, you know discerning eye at the plate were all very impressive. So they promoted him to high A, and he's hit three forty three. With eight homers and 19 games, I, I guess he just needed better competition. But the Red Sox are very excited about him. And then, you know, Sam, we talked about Alcantara, who we, we kind of bumped off the last time we updated the top 100 because he got off to a really slow start. He'd been on the top 100, I think, for well over a year. Joined it around middle of last year. Part of the Anthony Rizzo trade with the Yankees. Still just 21 years old. He seems like he's been around forever. He signed in 2018. He was one of the younger guys in that international class. 6'6", 188, really projectable athlete. And I guess he got offended, Sam, that we didn't rank him because he's been on a tear uh, for the last six weeks or that we knocked him off the list. So we, we restored him to the top 100. Old friend Kevin Alcantara back on the list at, at number 100. Yeah, normally I'm not a huge fan of like knocking a guy off and then putting him back on, but he has that kind of profile of like pretty decent speed, good power, uh, and the fact that he turned it around in the way he has, uh, I think has been really interesting. And, you know, we don't want to leave him off just because we kicked him off once. His numbers since the start of June, he's batting 325, 404 OBP, 550 slugging percentage. That works out to a 169. WRC plus. So he's been 69% better than the average uh, Midwest league player at playing at high A at only 20 years old. Um, so now he's, he's been above average there for the season, nine homers, 12 stolen bases, 115 WRC plus on the year, but I expect that to go up or they might challenge him with a move uh, to double A Tennessee. Like if they decide Pete Crow Armstrong is ready for Iowa, I think they could also call up Alcantara to Tennessee and keep that chain moving. All right. Uh, we have a question in the mailbag to answer to wrap things up. This comes from Russell. How do you think you say this name? Budai? B-U-D-A-I? Uh, at Russell Budai on Twitter. Fun question. Where would the 2023 international prospects like Salas or Walcott have been drafted if available? I think this is uh, an even more fun question. or it's It's easier to think about because we have seen Salas. I mean, usually you don't see these guys uh, nearly as much or at as high a level as we've seen Salas. Uh, but that, I think, helps kind of put his talent into perspective a little bit. And they're both top, well, not quite yet both top 100 guys, but Ethan Salas is number 48 on the top 100. And I will break from protocol and reveal that the next time somebody... I'm going to. <laughs> Sebastian Wolcott is number 101 on our, our list and will join the top 100. We have a, I don't know who the next graduation is, but I know, I know it's soon. So, so he's soon to be on the top 100 to kind of put their talents in perspective. I guess today, I think Brian Wu graduates as we record this. So Sebastian Wolcott 
of the Rangers may be on the top 100 list by the time people listen to this podcast. So, so Sam, I, I, I obviously am immersed in the draft. I'm going to let you answer the question first, and then I will then I will give my thoughts. Yeah. So for me. I'll, I'll speak on Salas more. Um, we knew him as like the number one guy coming into this draft and uh, or coming into this international class, I, I should say. And it seemed I don't want to say head and shoulders, but he was definite number one, pretty much a consensus uh, for being number one. If it's tough because when he signed, you know, he was technically younger than anybody in this class. He hadn't turned 17 yet. He just turned 17 in June. So comparing a 16-year-old to like 18-year-olds 18 year olds and 21-year-olds is, is a little difficult. I would expand that big five to a big six uh, with Solace. I, I would say he d- deserves to be in there. When we do our midseason update, I know he's in the top 50 now. I expect him to take another healthy jump because – what he's doing at single A at his age has been really special, but we wouldn't know that technically in this world, in this multiverse in which uh, he's eligible for the drafts instead of signing already. But everything's just so advanced. It's a premium position. Um, he hits well. He throws well. He catches really well. He's knowledgeable about the game. There's a reason why the Padres were getting super aggressive with him out of the jump, and they were super excited to, to sign him. And I've said this plenty of times, like after they signed him, they were – having him catch major league arms uh, in bullpens, including you Darvish. And you Darvish looked extremely happy with the way the guy was framing the ball and receiving it at, at that age. Looked happy regardless of what his age would be. He seemed very comfortable throwing to him and throwing a whole mess of different pitches. And he was scooping them up like he'd been working with Darvish for years. Um, so I, w- I would have put him in that big six conversation uh, alongside, you know, the the Clarks and the Skeens and the uh, – the cruises and all them, I, I would have been fascinated to see where he would go, but I would definitely say he would have been in that conversation and which would have put him in conversation for number one overall. Yeah. And I think if you're just talking pure upside, then you, you could throw Sebastian Walcott in there as the seventh guy too. I mean, he's got crazy power and bat speed, crazy arm strength, solid runner plays short. If he has to move off short, the bat's going to profile we're not going to go berserk over, you know, Arizona Complex League stats. But, you know, Sebastian Walcott, 17 years old. He's got six homers and 14 games in the ACL after coming to the U.S. He's looked great. Um, and eight stolen bases. Eight stolen bases, hitting 373. Pretty crazy numbers. And, and Sam, you touched on this. I mean, th- th- there's kind of two aspects to the question. Like, in terms of upside, like, and tools, you know, Salas, you know, the kind of catcher he is, and Wolcott with these kind of tools is shortstop. Like, like you could argue they have more upside than Max Clark or or Walker Jenkins because of the positions they play. And but just like we were talking about at the top of the draft with with the high school players, how the teams have more comfort in the guys they have more track record and data on with the college guys. I, I you know, I don't know if they'd go six or seven, go in the top six or seven, because you'd have even less track record and less data on 16-year-olds compared to the 18-year-old high schoolers like you were talking about, the 21-year-old collegians. But, you know, and like, you know, we saw, if you look at the draft, the A's cut a deal at six. So I, I don't necessarily think they would have taken Ethan Salas at six if he was still on the board. But I, I think on pure upside, they would rank, you'd expand that top five group to a top seven while acknowledging that there'd be more risk with Salas and Walcott. If, if you were just drafting pure upside, to me, they'd, they'd go in the top seven picks. Yeah, it almost makes me wonder, like, if the Tigers were really open to taking a long-term project like Max Clark over Wyatt Langford, would they have taken Solace at three? Yeah, it, it would be really yeah, interesting. That would I definitely can, be in the conversation. Yeah. Now, now I want to see. I want to. I want to transport to this multiverse to see <laughs> where Ethan Salas and Sebastian Walcott would go. Because, like, what if, like, I don't know, maybe in this multiverse, what we've seen them do so far in pro ball would be replicated you know, somehow, you know, I don't know, draft combines are very short, but like, you know, some kind of performance during the spring, um, it would be interesting because both those guys are extremely, extremely talented players. Did the Rangers take Walcott or did they take White Langford? Like, th- that that might be a tough one. Yeah. But they're going to have both. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, another, another way to look at this is, you know, Salas is already 48. Sam, you speculated it'll jump at the re-rank. How many how many draft prospects? How many recently drafted players are going to rank in the top fifty of the of the top one hundred? 
Is it, at is least it just, five. At is least it just five. Those five. Well, yeah. it is hard to like. I know, like in my mind, all t- all five of those guys. You know, Skeens, Cruz, Langford, Jenkins, Clark was the order we ranked them in on our top um, to draft top two fifty. All probably belong in the top twenty to thirty prospects in the game. I think we even did we talk about this on a podcast? Maybe we had a podcast question about it. Um, and then after that, it's like, okay, where do you put Rhett Louder and Kyle Teal and Jacob Wilson and and those guys like that? I have. Yeah, we talked about it in terms of the pitchers only. I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't wrapped my head. Around, you're right. That it was the pitchers. Like I can't remember how high we say we'd go with Louder or Dolander, but I think we said they'd probably be in the fifties or so. So again, yeah, I mean, I think that kind of reinforces that Ethan Salas would be. Yeah, the big five would be a big six, and then it would depend on how aggressive you wanted to get with Walcott. Interesting to take a quick scan of the of the the top guys on our 2023 international prospect list. I mean, I think a lot of people know what Salas has been doing because he's been doing it stateside, and it's been so impressive. His OPS as a 16 and now 17-year-old at single A is 867. The number two ranked player has not played yet, uh, Felon Celestin, who the Mariners got. Number three, Joe Andre Vargas, who the Dodgers got a, as a uh, hitting slashing 347, 467, 537 for a 1.004 OPS in the DSL. Uh, Alfredo Duno, Reds, hitting 408, on base percentage of 522, slugging 690 for a 1212 OPS. The, these are obviously small sample sizes. These guys have had. Not quite 100 at-bats even. But you like to see these guys off to good starts. The top pitcher taken, Luis Morales, is off to a good start. 2.76 ERA across six games. Almost all these guys in the top 10 are looking very good early on. Thanks for that question. That was a fun question, uh, Russell. And thanks to everybody for listening. That is a wrap for this Pipeline podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week.